Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. I'm Lise Van Boxel at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, currently in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So we're back with more <laughs> Aristotle. Aristotle, it's our third one, so we've officially got the trilogy. Uh, we'll be looking for the Marvel deal shortly. Um, and we're going to get into a uh, super fun topic, slavery. Uh, Lise is going to give us a intro and uh, ask an opening question. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, let's just, uh, for those of you who are not just listening to all the pods in succession, I'll offer just a brief synopsis of where I think we left off last time by way of transition. So we finished book four, uh, sorry, book one, chapter two, because <laughs> we're just rocking through this thing at a high mm-hmm. pace. Yeah, and um, that's right. The, the sort of final statement of chapter two concerned justice. And we were told that justice is a thing belonging to the city. Um, then chapter three opens up and it looks like that claim gets complicated because we've returned to the household and it's divided into the smallest parts, which he identifies as number one, master and slave, number two, husband and wife, number three, father and children. And then he, he says, we're going to determine from what each it we're going to speak about what each is and what each thing ought to be beginning with the master and the slave relationship. Um, he notes then, as is typical of Aristotle, what the common opinions are about the status of slavery. And in that, uh, his synopsis of those opinions, he does not turn to the city, or at least the opinions do not simply look to the city to determine whether or not it is just to have a, natu- a slave. Rather, um, one of the claims looks to nature. So again, that point that he made at the end of the prior chapter, that justice belongs to the city, is at least somewhat undermined or complicated by this one opinion about slavery that looks to nature. Aristotle is going to have neither of the common opinions that he summarizes, but he does use them as a sort of entree to uh, exploring what a slave is, and in particular, whether there is such a thing as a natural slave. So let me just say what those two opinions are. Um, Brian, could you um, read for us? Do we want to just continue doing what we're doing and reading slowly from the beginning? that sounds good. Yeah, great. Yeah, sounds good. Now that I have explained what the component parts of the state are, and since every state consists of households, it is essential to begin with the household management. This topic can be subdivided so as to correspond to the parts of which a complete household is made up, namely the free and the slaves. But our method requires us to examine everything when it has been reduced to its smallest parts. And the first and smallest division of a household into parts gives three pairs, master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. And so we must ask ourselves what each one of these three relationships is and what sort of thing it ought to be. The word mastership is used to describe the first, and we may use matrimonial in the case of the union of man and women, and paternal to describe the other two, as there is no more specific term for either. We may accept these three, but we find that there is a fourth element, which some people regard as covering the whole of household management, others as its most important part, and our task is to consider its position. I refer to what is called the acquisition of wealth. Okay, and then here's where he turns to the specific topic of this and the subsequent several chapters, which is what is a slave. Could you just read this paragraph for, for us? And then I want to particular to note what the two common opinions are about the status of slavery. Or 
First, let us discuss master and slave in order to see, A, how they bear on the provision of essential services, and B, whether we can find a better way towards understanding this topic than if we started from the suppositions usually made. For example, some people suppose that being a master requires a certain kind of knowledge and that this is the same knowledge as is required to manage a household or to be a statesman or a king, an error which we discussed at the beginning. Others say that it is contrary to nature to rule as master over slave, because the distinction between slave and free is one of convention only, and in nature there is no difference. So this form of rule is based on force and is therefore not just. Okay, I think to begin I'd like to just pause and have a look at those two different opinions, neither of which is Aristotle's. Um, But I'm interested to begin in just how he packs more than... um, more than one opinion into the first position. And I'm not sure I see immediately what the connection is, but the first position is um, those who hold that mastery is a kind of science, that is to say it requires knowledge, and that managing the household, mastery, and expertise in political and kingly rule are the same. So somehow these things all go together. Um, And so let's just chew on why whether it's clear to us why that's the case. Yeah, well, um, mastery being a kind of science, I wonder whether there's a a kind of implied universality in that, and that um, managing the household, mastery and political and kingly rule would then just be uh, three different uh, mistaken names for mastering human beings more generally. Right. So my thought was that um, household management really means mastering people outside the household, mastery, of course, mastering slaves, and then political and kingly rule are really mastering one's equals and one's free inferiors or something like that. So that, that seems right to me. What's at stake in that, in that person's position? So one thing that occurs to me is that if you don't think that these different arenas require different skills, if you just think that they all come under mastery, um, maybe that gives you um, a kind of, not put too fine a point on it, tyrannical authority, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, it's not clear to me why um, making the distinctions that the people who don't hold this view hold... um, would reduce mastery from a science to something else. Maybe uh, the realm where there are lots of different particular distinctions is more art than science, according to Aristotle. That might be one way of going. I will point out an interesting thing, which is um, in the previous paragraph that Brian read, Aristotle uh, remarks offhandedly, as he sometimes does, uh, that there are no words, no names for the two kinds of rule, uh, the rule in the marriage and the rule of children. That seems to me to indicate that um, there really is no party other than Aristotle, perhaps, who uh, maintains the view that these are all different. Because if there were a group of people who maintained that view, uh, there would be names for these kinds of rules. Uh, That's how they would talk about them. Or at least there are no, I mean, I guess I might allow for Plato's Socrates and Plato in in there, but at least it's not common parlance, that's for sure, and, and seems to be limited to at best, a newly emerged group of philosophers called political philosophers. Yeah, yeah, that makes some sense to me. That's a good correction. And I just add, um, earlier Aristotle had said that um, 
It's characteristic of barbarians to confuse uh, mastery, the master and slave relationship with the male-female relationship. Right. Now it looks like it might be characteristic of the Greeks who are not political philosophers as well. I think that might be right, yes. Okay, so I think um, part of the way we can dig down into this string of things that are lumped together with those who think mastery is a kind of science, I'll note too that it's not clear what these people think science is, um, that might be further illuminated by going on, on to the second opinion, which also includes, it's also complex, because I, uh, the, the contrast might help us see more fully what the first group um, thinks. And it's in the second group that the term nature comes up as a standard for justice, which was the thing, the new thing we haven't seen, and that it at least initially looked like uh, Aristotle was not saying. So that, again, is others hold that exercising mastery is against nature, for, as they believe, it is by law that one person is a slave and another free, since there is no difference by nature, and hence it is not just, since it rests on force. Yeah. So here, um, we should maybe say something about what it means to say something is merely conventional. So as opposed to nature, anything that's not by nature, and that actually turns out to be, you know, a whole a whole book in itself as to what nature is, but. Uh, anything that's man-made or human-made, let's just do that for the moment, is going to be a convention um, or artificial. And it's the kind of thing that without having, um, in this case, I, t I take it, a, s a series of laws and mores that uphold this convention, it wouldn't continue to exist, right? It's And it, it does continue to exist because of force, and the implicit claim is uh, a relationship that rests on force is unjust right right yeah so well i like how he, i mean i like that the two reasons are either force or knowledge right because that's pretty broad um but knowledge can be tricky right because it doesn't that doesn't intuitively make sense to me unless it's you know it means the ability to persuade people that it's in their best interest to be subservient right and especially because he's parsing that out separate from force. So I guess, I, I guess my question is, are those, do those like two, um, examples, are they totally mutually separate or could there maybe be some kind of overlap? The two, the two being slave and another free. Well, no, the two types of, for example, some people suppose that being master requires a certain kind of knowledge. Others say it is contrary, and it's based on force, right? So the, the two options are knowledge or force. I'm reading that right, right? And so I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. like, it doesn't seem, that doesn't seem, I don't want to get bogged down too much, because otherwise we're going to do what we did last time and take an hour to get through three chapters. Yeah. But this is but good. it's yeah. important, I think, you know, to understand the basic definition. And so he's saying that, you know, for some kind, so for some, for example, some people suppose that being a master requires a certain kind of knowledge, and this is the same knowledge is required to manage a household or be a statement or a king, an error which we discussed at the beginning. So for this whole system to work, this whole system of slavery and the household and the state and everything else, it's because that masters have some kind of knowledge that's similar to a statesman or a king or something like that. That's his proposal. I don't well, know if a, I... That's a common opinion, not Oh, sorry, a common proposal. opinion. Yes, yeah. sorry. Thank you for clarifying. Um, I don't really know if that makes sense. Um that just knowledge in and of itself could keep someone in servitude, right? 
Um, and then the other one is force, which does make sense to me. Like, yes, if you are threatening violence and somebody can't fight back, then I could see, you know, slavery yeah. as an institution. Yeah, well, let, let me try this to see. Um, it, it looks like there are these two groups, and the question is how much space or daylight is there between them, right? In other words, are there is there a possibility of a third or even more groups? And I guess I'd say this is a first step. Uh, so we've got some who think that mastery is a kind of science, others that say that mastery is against nature. The thing that seems to separate them is implied, right? Um if the uh, thing is based on convention, it's, it can't be a science, right? That seems like a kind of suppressed premise that differs the some who think it's a science from the others who say it's against nature. And then the question becomes, well, they make that judgment about it not being a science because it's based on convention or force entirely on the relationship between master and slave. But two other relationships have been mentioned at least, right? Uh, there's been an allusion to a relation between husband and wife and an allusion to a relation between children. And it's a little harder to say that the, those differences are by convention. Yeah, that's really right. helpful. So I know this is going to sound sort of funny, but let's just slow down a little bit. I think I um, uh, the pace is just so overwhelmingly fast that I, I, I spoke too soon. I, I should have been more careful in my prior comment about this the string of things. The claim in the second position is not that it's unjust because it's based on force. It, it, it's, it has uh, multiple steps, right? It's unjust because it is um, unnatural or against nature, right? Um, I think so. So it's, it's against nature, they say, and then there's no difference uh, by nature between a, a slave and a free person. That's conventional, uh, hence, it is not just since it rests on force. So these three elements are sort of tangled in there, right? It's against nature, and therefore, because it's against nature, it must be upheld by force, and therefore, it's unjust. But go- going back to what you just said, Jeff, yes, I I think it that this relationship between the master and the slave is just a kind of um, uh, it's a way way by which Aristotle will start to speak about the political and parental relationships more generally. So if I take it, if you have position, um, if you think it's fine to master a slave, um, you think it's fine to master, obviously, your citizens. So you have this, that's what I, I suggested, I think there's a nod towards a tyrannical inclination in the first claim, right? That this person um, uh, really... Um, yeah, it just is is inclined to treat their so-called citizens as slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. So, so maybe if I'll just um, try a restatement of what I, I take you to just have said, uh, the question for Aristotle is: if you believe that some uh, forms of rule are based on nature, is there a way of limiting that, or are you compelled then to go to all forms of rule are based on nature and are mastery? Right. I think that's it. Yeah, and and that's as I said, that's that's where this term nature comes up apparently as a standard, which we haven't seen before with respect to the question of justice. But that's what's going on here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I guess if if that something about that second claim proves to be true, um, there the relationships that are thrown together in the first opinion. Um, we might need to understand their particular nature in order to understand how best 
um, one ought to rule in them. Yeah. Or how do yeah, they yeah. If they have a particular nature, then each of them might have a science. That's right. A kind of science that goes with it. Right. Yeah. Right. And as you as you pointed out, a, a science maybe in the true sense, as opposed to what looks you pointed out that it can't be a science if there, if it has no nature, but it could be a science if each of these relationships has a kind of nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay, so with with the yeah, sorry, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> do we do we want to try and read a little bit? I more? thought yeah, let's push us on to chapter four. Yeah, getting that radio voice ready, just getting getting in the <laughs> Aristotle character. Uh, now, property is part of a household, and the acquisition of property part of household management. For neither life itself nor the good life is possible without a certain minimum supply of the necessities. Again, in any special skill, the availability of the proper tools will be essential for the performance of the task, and the household manager must have his likewise. Tools may be animate as well as inanimate. For instance, a ship's captain uses a lifeless rudder, but a living man for watch. For a servant is, from the point of view of his craft, categorized as one of its tools. So any piece of property can be regarded as a tool enabling a man to live, and his property is an assemblage of such tools. A slave is a sort of living piece of property, and like any other servant, is a tool in charge of other tools. For suppose that every tool we had could perform its task, either at our bidding or itself perceiving the need, and if, like the statues made by Daedalus or the tripods of Hephaestus, of which the poet says that self-moved they'd enter the assembly of the gods. Shuttles in a loom could fly to and fro, and a plucker play a lyre of their own accord. Then master craftsmen would have no need of servants, nor masters of slaves. Should we go on just a little bit farther? Take take it to the whole yeah, end? Yeah, sure. sure. So I was just doing like a long Shatner-like pause there. <laughs> for dramatic effect. Sure. Tools, in the ordinary sense, are productive tools, whereas a piece of property is meant for action. I mean, for example, a shuttle produces something other than its own use. A bed or a garment does not. Moreover, since production and action differ in kind and both require tools, the difference between their tools, too, must be of the same kind. Now, life is action and not production. Therefore, the slave, a servant, is one of the tools that minister to action. Okay, so since you're doing another dramatic pause, I take it you're. That's you're I'm just. Asking. I'm giving. I'm giving you guys the opportunity <laughs> to say us, really yeah. smart things now, um, and help me okay. understand what's going on. So I was. Struck if you don't want to, I'll keep going. That's fine. No, I mean since you paused, you know. It's like, um, this is a good spot. This is a good spot. I, I was struck as a starting point by this last sentence that Brian read: "Life is action, not production." The slave is therefore a subordinate in matters concerning action. Um, And I thought, did you mean, or by this, do you mean to say a slave is a subordinate in matters concerning the action that is living? And if that's the case, the question comes up, um, merely living or living well? Because that's where we started out. We were wondering about not just merely surviving, but living well. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that um, you know our our ordinary and maybe modern understanding of slavery is really as an economic relationship, and Aristotle definitely starts out by thinking about the economics of the situation and uh, the place of slavery and acquisition, but that's not where he concludes. Right. And so it looks like even if, if I'm understanding the um, the flow of the argument, even if one had all the necessities. There might be still some reason to have slaves, 
right? That's what it would mean uh, for a slave to be a, a necessary subordinate uh, in matters concerning action and not just production. And the other way around, too, I wonder, that's why I thought the question implicitly comes up of mere life or merely living or living well, because the household had, you know, a man or a husband, a wife and a slave, and the slave could be an ox or it could be a human being. And that was for the sake of living, but the city was for the sake of living well. So uh, another possibility to the one you just sketched, Jeff, is that, well, maybe in, um, in order just to live, one does need to have some kind of slave. It could be an ox or it could be the person. But maybe by the time you get into a city, which has the more, which has the fuller goal of living well, maybe you don't need slaves. It's at least a question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe something about the interactions of multiple households means um, you don't need, you don't need at least a human slave. And maybe, maybe even should not have one. That's an open question, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's let's have a look at some of the examples because these um, might help. Um, the first one that I see is the difference between the pilot's rudder and the pilot's lookout, and I wonder there. Um, you know, often the the um, metaphor of sailing or the image of sailing is the image of statesmanship uh, in these early uh, these ancient political books. Um, but Aristotle wants to distinguish between an inanimate instrument and an animate instrument. Um, is it right to say that the example it is is an example where the instruments are being used in action and not in production? Does that seem fair first? Because sailing is not a productive art. Yes. It's an art of going here or going there or invading somebody's territory. Yes. Um, and then, then it looks to me like um, what differentiates the lookout from the rudder is that the lookout has to be able to see and to speak. And, right? and maybe more than that, the lookout presumably also needs mind, either directly or mm-hmm. by talking to somebody else. That, this is going to be key, right? Right. Yeah, that's the direction I was heading in. Because the next example is when we get the uh, Daedalus and Hephaestus automata, it looks like uh, it's important that they be able to function on command or by anticipation, right? In other words, they have speech, or they recognize speech, um, and they have foresight, right? They maybe be able to differentiate situations. And they go of their own accords to the gods' gatherings, which I take to be at least uh, political. Um, Mm -hmm. But there, so we go from sort of the the most primitive example of the rudder and the pilot to something pretty sophisticated, these beings that aren't just bodies. So the rudder pilot example, the if I could put it this way, the body mind or is separated, um, or um, mm-hmm. or the the thing doing the action, the thing guiding the action, in the statues that move, those the the, the Daedalus statues, um, as you point out, they have mind, they can anticipate, they can think, and what do they do? They go of their own accord, so they also have choice and something like free will um, to go mm-hmm. to political, I take it to be at least political gatherings. So now that becomes mm-hmm. much, much more complicated. Mm-hmm. So just to summarize where I think we've gone, um, the importance of uh, slaves as instruments or subordinates for the sake of action rather than production puts uh, an especial weight on their possession of uh, qualities of intellect. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Should we make our way to the end of 
the chapter. Let, let me just throw one more thing in, which we don't need to make very much of. But as the uh, official keeper uh, keeper of track of Achilles in the group, you remember a couple meetings ago, we talked about a reference to the Iliad that was a reference to the time when Achilles was not participating in war. Well, these mentions of Daedalus and of Hephaestus, um, in particular, the mention of Hephaestus comes from the part of the Iliad when Achilles is about to return to battle and Hephaestus is about to make him his new armor. So there's something about the uh, return to the discussion of slavery or the focus on slavery here that has war in the background. Excellent. And uh, I think that's particularly important. Yeah. And for any of our listeners that are still a little confused as the difference between uh, tools of action and tools of production, I'm with you. So... (laughs) But we'll keep going anyway. Maybe it'll it'll click for me. It'll click for me. Are you sure? Because we could we could pause and look at the look at the example he gives. Well, I right? just I'm not. I don't understand the difference between action and production. I still don't get it. Like, yeah. what's what's the difference? Well, here's the sentence. At least in in my translation, we'll see if it makes some sense. Uh, for from the shuttle comes something apart from the use of it, while from clothing or a bed the use alone. And so I take it the shuttle is an instrument or a subordinate for production, and clothing or a bed are instruments or subordinates for action. Yeah, it's like one is right? one is sort of directly, the latter one is directly um, useful, if I could put it that way, uh, and the, the prior one is directly but with, with a view to something beyond itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's everything. I mean, the, the bed is in order to sleep. The clothes are in order to stay warm. The shuttle is in order to make clothes. So, Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I think the, uh, they don't differ in having that in order to structure. They do differ. This is a maybe a more Aristotelian way of, of uh, speaking about it, and it might make things worse rather than better. I'm aware of that. But um, for Aristotle, the question is, what, where does the movement stop? In instruments of production, the movement stops when you've made the thing that you were making, right? Whereas in the case of action, the movement uh, in some ways never stops, or it stops when you die, because the action is living. Yeah. Right? And, that's, and that just keeps on going. And that's, I mean, that's what I find that to be the strangest thing is the move from these instruments to life. Uh, another way, to, when once he's made that move, I think it's perfectly fair to, to anticipate, if you're somewhat familiar with Aristotle, um, Something like, is it good in itself, or is it good with a view to something else? So life, uh, certainly uh, a philosophic life, is just good in itself. It doesn't mean that it can't also be useful, but it's not like its goodness comes because it's useful for some other thing. So I often put it this way to people. Let's think of it in terms of um, uh, how you think about your actions in your life, for instance. You say, well, why, why do you want to earn money? Well, because I want a car. Well, why do you want a car? Well, because I want to be able to drive my friends to the movies. Well, why do you want to go to the movies? And there's, there's always the why question. But with something like, well, why do you want to, say in Aristotle's case, philosophize? Because that's what it is to have a good life. Um, and he, for him, a good life uh, ideally would have happiness as part of it. And so hap- nobody says, well, why do I want to be happy? Nobody asks the why beyond that. So there's some something analogous here, right? That the shuttle is not that it's like I, the shuttle, um, as Jeff put it, the action stops with the shuttle, the action stops with the clothes or maybe the use I put them to. Um, um, 
Yeah. And why do I, what do I think is running through this? I think the theme of mind is implicitly coming up and will be further developed. That is uh, the life of the mind, which has to be embodied for human beings. That's going to be really what it means to have, uh, to, to be living well. Um, and the question is how the slave factors into living well. Should we read a little bit more? Yeah, let's do it. A piece of property is spoken of in the same way as a part is, for a part is not only part of something, but belongs to a toot court. And so too does a piece of property. So a slave is not only his master's slaves, but belongs to him toot court. While the master is his slave's master, but does not belong to him. Do, do some of my uh, Canadian friends who speak French want to tell me what toot court means? Shame on this translator who thought that Aristotle spoke French. <laughs> <laughs> or assumed that his readers would know what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it means wholly or entirely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Liter- literally uh, uh, in short or completely in short. Okay. Yeah. Right? So our translation, Jeff and I are using the same one, but just, just in case people were thrown by that, a possession is spoken of in the same way as a part. A part is not only part of something else, but belongs wholly to something else. Similarly with a possession. Accordingly, while the master is only master of the slave and does not belong to him, the slave is not only a slave to the master, but belongs wholly to him. So has no existence apart from the master. Cool. I don't think there's any French in the rest of the paragraph, so I'll keep okay. trying. <laughs> uh, yeah. I could do it in a French accent, though, just to throw the... Li- no, I won't. Okay. Uh, these considerations will have shown what the nature and functions of the slave are. Any human being that by nature belongs not to himself, but to another is by nature a slave. And a human being belongs to another whenever, in spite of being a man, he is a piece of property, i.e. a tool having separate existence and meant for action. Okay, so here we see classic Aristotle. It's stereotypical. People will read this and they'll think, oh, he's a supporter of slavery. He's not done because this uh, first enunciation of what a natural slave is includes um, the sense of possession. And we don't know yet whether or not um, a human being can be a possession, right? Uh, how, how would I, what would that mean? And what standard would I evaluate whether or not that was a just or unjust thing to, to think one had a possession in another human being? And some signs that uh, is not as clear as Aristotle likes to say it is, is first, um, the, the whole first part of chapter four that we've been talking about, Aristotle's been saying is, is, is over and over again. But in the part that Brian just read, we have is spoken of. Right. Right. So we've been alerted that we've moved from the level of something that Aristotle has asserted um, to some extent in his own name to something that uh, he's reporting other people say. And this thing that other people say, apparently, um, has the part being uh, wholly belonging or wholly being a possession of something else. But he concludes that a possession is separate from its owner. Right, so there's some some way Aristotle's indicated a problem here, and despite his insistence that things are clear, he's indicated they're actually not clear. Right. Yeah. All right, you guys want to keep going? Let's do it. Yeah, might get through two chapters. It's possible. Might. We're heading into five now, so it's a dangerous precedent. <laughs> it only took us 32 minutes to get through one chapter. Well, that's actually cautionary because there are a whole two pages here. Yeah. I think we can do it. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll, do, I'll do big chunks. I'm going to do a big chunk. 
Okay. But whenever anyone does in fact by nature answer to this description, and whether or not it is a just and better thing for one man to be a slave to another, or whether all slavery is contrary to nature, these are the questions which must be considered next. Neither theoretical discussion nor empirical observation presents any difficulty. That one should command and another obey is both necessary and expedient. Indeed, some things are so divided right from birth, some to rule, some to be ruled. There are many different forms of this ruler-ruled relationship, and the quality of the rule depends primarily on the quality of the subjects, rule over man being better than rule over animals. For that which is produced by better men is a better piece of work, and the ruler-ruled relationship is itself a product created by men involved in it. I said I was going to take a bigger chunk, but that's, I feel like we got to pause there, because it just points out that you know, he's now bringing up the fact, like, is this whole thing I just pitched you in the previous three paragraphs actually believable? And, you know, the, I, I, the way I'm taking this is, you know, but, but the the first line, but whether anyone does in fact by nature answer to this description, you know, like that's, that's a great question. Like he's described this whole system and now he's going, but does this actually like exist the way is the way I'm describing is actually how it exists. And it's super interesting to me, like that he, you know, posits, um, and just says it flat out. This isn't like people say, um, but he says that one should command and another obey is both necessary and expedient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I, I urge us to pay attention to the three categories or the three criteria that Aristotle's, um, introducing as parts of, like you put it, Brian, it, it, you know, does this thing exist? There are slaves, but the question is, are they slaves by nature? Uh, is it good? And is it just? Right. right. Those are his three categories. And I think we're going to see that there's lots of talk about nature or what he comes to call necessity in what follows and lots of talk about what's good, but surprisingly little talk about the thing we're most interested in, maybe, which is, is it just? Right. Also, too, um, the the line you alerted us to, Brian, when he says, um, ruling and being ruled belong not only among things necessary, but also among things advantageous. And immediately from birth, certain things diverge, some toward being ruled, others toward ruling. So one reads that and one thinks, oh, he's talking about natural slaves. I mean, it's clear that some people from birth are born as slaves. But that's not what he goes on to say, right? Ruling and, and, and being ruled by nature. The example he gives is a human being over a beast. Later he'll go on, we'll get there, but mind over body, say. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, two notes in a harmony apparently also fall under this, uh, this description. But yeah, that, that makes some sense to me. We wouldn't say, uh, for example, that an infant child and an infant animal I guess infants imprecise, a newborn child and a newborn animal uh, have much of a relation of ruling and being ruled between them. But as the two get older, uh, it becomes, it makes more sense that the human being, for example, rule the dog than that the dog rule the human being. Yes. Right. We generally hope for the former. Right. And he also grants, I mean, he's, he's just accepted uh, uh, nature as a guide here. Um, with respect to the question of ruling and being ruled, although we haven't got to the human example yet, but that part at least he just he just accepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we got four more paragraphs. We can do this. Okay, we got to go. go All ahead. right. <laughs> For wherever there is a combination of elements, continuous or discontinuous, and a common unity is the result, 
In all such cases, the ruler-ruled relationship appears. It appears notably in living creatures as a consequence of their whole nature, and it can exist also where there is no life, as dominance in a musical scale, but that is hardly relevant here. The living creature consists in the first place of mind and body, and of these the former is ruler by nature, the latter ruled. Now we must always look for nature's own norm in things whose conditions is according to nature, and not base our observations on degenerate forms. We must therefore in this connection consider the man who is in good condition mentally and physically, one in whom the rule of mind over body is conspicuous, because the bad and unnatural condition of a permanently or temporarily depraved person will often give the impression that his body is ruling over his soul. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'd be inclined to work backwards a little bit here. Um, It's not that the body does rule the soul in the case of a depraved or sick human being. It just looks like it. So um, Aristotle seems to be suggesting that even in those cases, uh, the soul is really ruling. In other words, this kind of natural um, division into a ruling and a ruled element of things that seem continuous uh, is possible to discern, if not easy to discern, in a whole lot of different cases. Right? So Aristotle, uh, I think, has, has uh, reason to claim, at least, that he's on fairly solid ground with this distinction. Yeah, yeah and I'm just interested here now, the terms we were previously speaking of with respect to the household and the city now are applied to the individual with respect to body and, and mind. So, um, And he's done a sort of reversal. We're going to use the individual, and in particular, the individual who is not depraved, but who is, in fact, sort of maximally healthy in body and soul, that's going to be the standard, it looks like, by which we're going to start to think about and evaluate uh, the household and the political realm. Mm -hmm. Right, and I guess uh, it might be a little surprising to see that he's not talking uh, in the language of mastery when he's talking about um, both the animal and the human being with regard to soul and body. Uh, So it might already be a kind of concession that even in the healthiest case, uh, there is a kind of give and take or uh, something less than complete mastery between the two parts involved. Yeah, let's launch ourselves into the next paragraph where he fleshes that out, because uh, that'll be clearer than doing it um, before we've read it. Right. However that may be, it is, as I say, within living creatures that we must, that we first find it possible to see both the rule of a master and that of a statesman. The rule of soul over body is like a master's rule, while the rule of intelligence over desire is like a statement's, like a statesman or a king's. In these relationships, it is clear that it is both natural and expedient for the body to be ruled by the soul and for the emotional part of our natures to be ruled by the mind, the part which possesses reason. The reverse, or even parity, would be fatal all around. This let's is also true. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, let's just pause there because, I, because um, we went quite quickly and, and it's important to see the differences here, right? So uh, the soul rules the, rules the body with the rule characteristic of a master. So we could go back to our master-slave, uh, and particularly our slave definition, and say, well, the body might be a bit like that slave, right? And um, while the intellect rules the appetite or our desires with political and kingly rule, right? So now we know that he certainly doesn't agree with respect to the individual with the first opinion that he took up, right? Where mastery was sort of 
accounted for all all of the relationships he articulated. Here, it's different, and one adjusts the kind of ruling one does according to the kind of thing being ruled. So the mind properly rules the body as a, as a master, I presume, because the body doesn't operate without being so ruled. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, it rules the passions more politically or with a kingly rule. That is, as, as you were alluding to, Jeff, before we read the paragraph, it's like they have more say in, in the, the political circumstance there, if I could call it that, than the body, which, of course, couldn't have a say since it doesn't have any mind. Right, and Aristotle's elucidation here helps to explain why uh, the case of depraved or sick human beings can be confusing. It looks like the body is ruling the soul, but in fact, that doesn't happen, right? The soul rules the body with mastery. It does it absolutely. What happens instead is that intellect fails to rule appetite, or it allows its political or kingly rule to lapse for whatever reason. And so appetite rules the body, which looks a lot like the body ruling the soul. Right. And the other thing to note is that here, in both of these relationships, mastery with respect to the body or political and kingly rule with respect to the desires or passions, um, he says, well, uh, I assume that, uh, well, let me do, do this in steps. Um, certain, those relationships, when properly, um, when carried out properly, are beneficial to both right? Both the ruling one and the one being ruled, right? And right. if it's not carried out properly, it's detrimental to both, right? So insofar as we could, we can borrow from what he's doing here and apply it to the mastery-slave question in general, one would have to say that if mastery is not good for the slave, that might be problematic in the same way it's problematic if, say, the intellect is not properly ruling the appetites, Right. It, right. Ha- it ha- must be beneficial for both parties. Um, let- yeah, that seems right to me. And maybe just to underline something that uh, I said a little bit earlier. Again, we're talking about what's natural, which looks like it means either what's necessary or what happens apparently for the most part. And we're talking about what's good or advantageous. The question of what's just is waiting in the wings. Yes, it is. Yeah. And just one more thing. Earlier, we noted that um, we entertain the interpretation that the um, question of mastery and slavery uh, and all the questions that attend it, like whether it's just, whether it's natural, whether it's beneficial, um, seem to pertain also to, at least in the first opinion, uh, political rule broadly. So if that's the case, and we could borrow this analogy, we could further say that um, being in a political order or regime, to use Aristotle's terms, um, the people have to be benefited, as does the ruler, but certainly the people, right? So you, so you can't have a situation that looks like uh, where the people are harmed and the ruler is benefited. If this mm-hmm. body analogy, body mind, um, and intellect passions metaphor or analogy holds, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Want to read more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <good. laughs> Uh, Therefore, whenever there is the same wide discrepancy between human beings as there is between soul and body, or between man and beast, then those whose conditions is such that their their function is the use of their bodies and nothing better can be expected of them. Those, I say, are slaves by nature. It is better for them, just as in the cases mentioned, to be ruled thus. For the slave by nature is he that can and therefore does belong to another. 
and he that participates in reason so far as to recognize it, but not so as to possess it, whereas the other animals obey not reason but emotions. The use made of slaves hardly differs at all from those of tame animals. They both help with their bodies to supply our essential needs. It is then nature's purpose to make the bodies of free men to differ from those of slaves, the latter strong enough to be used for necessary tasks, the former erect and useless for that kind of work, but well suited for the life of a citizen of a state, a life which is in turn divided between the requirements of war and peace. Okay, so let's work backwards from here. The notable thing is at the last paragraph, which um, since you guys aren't looking at books, nature indeed wishes to make the bodies of free persons and slaves different as well as their souls. And you think, oh, well, he supports slavery. But, um, uh, and he goes on to say, you know, the people that are that are slavish by nature look like they're good for manual labor. But what's notably hovering over that claim is Socrates. So the paradigmatic philosopher who, uh, his body and and face look like they're made for labor. I mean, he's he's notoriously ugly and sort of thick and um, powerful, right? So right. Aristotle, I think, is, I mean, he obviously knows Socrates, so one can't simply get on board with this stated opinion and think, oh, that's Aristotle. I think it's a nod to prejudices, right? He's That one could look at someone and know what they're suited for. Just to add to that, um, we can grab a little piece of the Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle instructs us that the um, verb to wish, the thing that's rendered here is to wish, is um, what you do for things that are not in your power, right? It's distinguished from choice. So we could gloss this as saying it's not in nature's power to make the bodies of people match their souls. It's just a wish. Yeah, that would be very convenient, but it's not the case. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so let's go back to what I take to be a, a pretty crucial in what Brian just read. I'll just re- reread the t- what we have as the top of, of uh, what's marked as paragraph eight, I think. Accordingly, those who are as different from other men as the soul from the body or man from beast, and they are in this state if their work is the use of the body, and if this is the best that can come from them, are slaves by nature. So there's the bar. If you could find a human being who's as different from another human being as the soul is from the body. Good for you. That, that is by definition, the slave, but who fits that? Like what human being fits that? Right. It's almost as if he had said, if you can find a human being who does not match the definition of a human being, then you found a natural slave. Right. (laughs) And I think he, he almost immediately backs off from this very um, severe or even self-contradictory um, uh, definition by saying uh, they are in this state if their work is the use of the body and if this is the best that can come from them, right? That starts to slide towards a more political definition, something like there have to be people who use the body and maybe there are people who we can't ask for more and so those people are the natural slaves. But that's already a, a departure from or a weakening of the strict standard, which I think for Aristotle is the true standard. Right. Yeah. Right. So all the slaves that presumably the Athenian gentlemen have, um, which they acquire because these people are vanquished in war, for instance, would not qualify for this definition, right? Because most of them are are and have done things much uh 
uh, fuller um, or fuller use of intellect than what they're doing now with this just manual labor. So he's basically said, you guys have sl- slaves unjustly. They do not fit the definition of slaves. Although I grant you that there are slaves by nature, but <laughs> none of those people fit this definition and maybe no human being does. And let me just add, if there were such a human being, then according to the paradigm, it would be beneficial for such a person to have a master, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's not so clear that it would be beneficial for the master to have such a slave in this case, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big mm-hmm. responsibility and you'd have to, I mean, if it's like the body, you kind of have to be there all the time, moment to moment, guiding this this entity. Um, so so <laughs> it's not going to be beneficial for that person. Why would you have a slave of this kind? It looks more like a... Um, some sort of parental guidance more than mastery. Mm -hmm. That's right. And accordingly, Aristotle uh, downplays the distinction that he had made um, at at some length in the previous chapter. Now he says there's only a slight difference between having a, a slave in this sense and having an animal. Right. Right. So in other words, he covers over the distinction between production and uh, living or action that he had made so strongly earlier on. Yeah. Also, this I find tricky as well. So the the difference between soul and body is, is pretty extreme. As we noted, the body has no no mind that we can discern. The soul is, has the mind. But after that, so he says, well, that's that's what a slave would be by nature, the one that differs as much from another human being as does the soul from body. But then he goes on to say something that isn't exactly the same, for he is a slave by nature who's capable of belonging to another, which is also why he belongs to another. And here's the part, and who participates in reason only to the extent of perceiving it but does not have it. Am I supposed to think that my body perceives reason but doesn't have it? Or is this a sort of move away from that to what you were suggesting, Jeff? Well, my dog um, can certainly perceive reason, it seems. It can, it can understand a command. I, I, personally, I wouldn't deny my dog has something I might call reason. But um, uh, what, regardless of that question, it doesn't seem to be the same as the separation of or the, the difference that exists between body and soul. This, this entity can now perceive reason, even if it doesn't have it. Right. For me, this uh, bears on the the odd status of the passionate part of the soul or the appetites, right? They can somehow be ruled, uh, but they also somehow have a relationship to the body, and they're often confused with the body. Um, I don't know that I could sort out right now um, why Aristotle seems to be tacking back and forth between um, pointing out a difference between the natural slave and an animal and decreasing the difference between a natural slave and an animal. But again, it looks like the question is, we've got these two categories, human being and animal. If there's any daylight between them, that's where we would find the natural slave. But it's not clear there is any daylight between them. Right. All right, last paragraph before somebody says something. Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) But the opposite often occurs. People have the right kind of bodily physique for free men, but not the soul. Others have the right soul, but not the body. This much is clear. Suppose that there were men whose mere bodily physique showed the same superiority as is shown by the statues of gods. Then all would agree that the rest of mankind would deserve to be their slaves. And if this is true in relation to physical superiority, the distinction would be even more justly made in respect of superiority of soul. But it is much more difficult to see beauty of the soul than it is to see beauty of the body. 
It is clear then that by nature some are free, others slaves, and that for these it is both just and expedient that they should serve as slaves. I love that ending. It's like, well, after I've complicated things extremely, right, left you with these various problems, I'm just going to say, well, this is clear. It's like Aristotle says, I can tell you anything and then deny that I've told you that thing, and you'll believe me. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, okay. Well, maybe to point out one thing, um, Aristotle says it's often the case that the body of a free person is um, matched with an unfree soul and vice versa. By the earlier, one of the earlier definitions of nature, it means that that's the natural thing. If nature is what happens for the most part, then it's natural that there's a mismatch between soul and body. Um, if nature means the necessary, on the other hand, uh, Aristotle hasn't made an assertion in that direction, but this looks like it's, it's a very big problem, mm -hmm. and it gets worse when you compound it with the invisibility of the soul. Yes, yeah. Actually, when you, your comments, Jeff, it just highlights something we didn't touch on since we're going so slowly, let's do it. Uh, we'd also, we don't know what a free person is. Obviously, I think he's most explicitly talking about politically here. He's talking to Athenian gentlemen who are citizens. That is to say they can participate in uh, government. Um, but I think what he really means by free person is actually this example of a, a human being um, who's mind is properly ruling his or her body and whose intellect is properly politically ruling appetites. Right? That, that's his real definition of freedom. Yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah, that seems right to me. And I guess I have one more callback. And this is way back to our first conversation where we were talking about uh, nature making nothing like the Delphic knife. Uh, right? In other words, nothing that serves many purposes. Mm -hmm. Looks like the body of the free human being uh, has to be straight useless for manual labor, useful for war, and useful for peace. Mm -hmm. And I start nice. to wonder whether that isn't a Delphic knife right there. So uh, nature is uh, becoming more problematic as we're um, getting into a, a stronger argument for it being a standard. Yes. Nice. Cool. That's super complicated, guys. Thank you for caring. <laughs> Thank you for letting me just read. <laughs> It was but wait, there's more. <laughs> the end. That's it. Well, that's all I had to say. Uh, no, we'll be doing uh, chapters maybe six and seven if we get through them next time. Um, Sounds good. Maybe eight if we're just feeling crazy. But uh, thank you again to our listeners for uh, telling us that you'd like us to do this. If you're tired of it, you can tell us that too. You could be like, for the love of God, do something else. Um, not that I am. I'm fine. This, this is, I, haven't, I haven't touched Aristotle Probably since, like, you know, I, well, I, I guess we've, have we done it on the pod before we've done any Aristotle on the pod? We didn't do ethics, did we? I don't think so. I feel like no, we've probably so. seminared on ethics. Um, oh, maybe friendship books? Didn't we do the books of, the friendship books for the pod? I think we tossed around the idea, but haven't actually done it. Yeah, I don't think we did. Oh, it. Yeah. Okay. So it's been a while. I know, I know we sampled when we were just doing seminars. I know we, I think we did some ethics once or twice. But the bottom line is we listen. Yeah, we listen. And we read your comments. We so tell us listen. what you want. Totally. If you guys want to do Harry Potter, we'll do it. I think I just cut out there so you guys didn't hear that joke. It was hilarious. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. All right. Um, we're at about an hour. So yeah. probably want to wrap up. Do you guys have any anything you want to share? Any saved rounds, as we say in El Marine Corps? Just no, thanks, no, thanks no. for joining us. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll, we'll add this too. If you have questions about something we said or about the reading so far, um, 
or about upcoming readings, uh, say, in the Aristotle that you'd like us to address, we could see if we could work that in somehow. Yeah. 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 Oh, and if you've made it this far into the episode, uh, there will be some photos and video posted of Combat and Classics' first uh, theater performance, Ajax, at the Dallas Institute (laughs) of Humanities and Culture. Um, So that'll be up on the Facebooks here at some point shortly. Um, But aside from that, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Lise. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. (laughs) Until next time. Yes. Mm